0: This week on the show, we cover FreeBSD or Linux, a choice without OS wars. The computer scientist who can't stop telling stories. Uh, ChatGPT was asked to write a pfconf to spec and how that went. GhostBSD 23.06, GhostBSD 23.6.1 is out. OpenSense 23.1.9 is also released. You can also run VS code in Chromium on OpenBSD, it turns out. And how you can do that is part of the show. And more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 515, ChatGPT writing pfconf. Recorded on the 21st of June, 2023. That's the summer solstice, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot no. about that. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnapcom BSD Now, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreoncom BSD Now. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, we are your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And Tom Jones. Yep, and we are back with uh Tom in charge of his camera and his microphone. Uh Jason got a little time off, but not too long. He's up next. What, what, what do
1: you what do you mean in charge? Was was Jason being filmed by a small parrot or like, No.
0: No no. It's not like that he, it was he, a we got easy on camera and it refused to follow him. Like what was wrong? <laughs> no, no. He, as far as I'm concerned. It was it, all fine. It it was all fine. He was just like he never did anything else. No demons involved at all. Like no no gremlins. None that I work. could count. Yeah, they were they were all fine. And I guess the audience uh, is also happy uh, having someone uh, someone new, right? Uh, speaking of new, there's this thing going on uh, in clars article section. A new is appearing. A new article here. Uh, with the title Linux versus FreeBSD. Oh, that may sound like a a contentious thing, but here it is. FreeBSD or Linux, a choice without OS wars, right? This is without OS wars because we can all be friends, right? At the end, it's just everyone's uh, favorite thing. And it starts with the following. In the world of operating systems, there are always loud voices complaining about one operating system or another, its lack of relevance or wrong approach to a certain problem. Throughout the development of FreeBSD as an operating system, there have been triumphs and setbacks, but ultimately both Linux and FreeBSD have evolved to be stable operating systems with very different philosophies and approach to startup, setup, and usability. When choosing an operating system, it is important to consider the best tool for the job rather than just what is most popular, right? And so when it comes to deploying an operating system en masse, most customers will face the challenges of, hmm, how is this operating system supported? Hmm, how can I reach out when things don't go as expected? And hmm, are all the features that I need delivered with the OS, or are they available on a roadmap? The M mm, are a little bit of syntactic sugar of mine. Uh, with Linux benefiting by a strong commercial presence and more enterprise-driven feature set, it's easy to understand why distributions such as Canonicals Ubuntu and Red Hat Linux took over enterprise infrastructures. That being said, there is no such thing as the perfect choice for everyone a little bit uh, more in emphasis here, the perfect choice in terms of operating systems is what fits the infrastructure best at a specific time. And while commercial distribution have a great backing when it comes to support, it often doesn't leave a lot of room for customization and right sizing, especially if customers are looking for more batteries included, build your own platform type operating system. Yep, so Clara here provides complete support for FreeBSD, even if it's customized and rolled into an appliance or product. So they have a couple sections here that underlie some of the things people should consider. For example, uh, the understanding the values of FreeBSD. So uh, this article started out by making it clear that the war between N- star, Nix, whatever, Unix operating systems is largely pointless. Understanding the differences between distributions and making the right choice is very likely the only argument worth having. So instead of demonizing, yep, we learned straight into that one. Um, we're going to talk about how to leverage what FreeBSD has to offer. So here, kernel versus operating system, ready to launch. Linux is a kernel, not an operating system. And we've been telling you that for a while. This is also why when we talk about Linux, we tend to talk about a plethora of Linux distributions, which are just varieties of implementations. Once you settle on a distribution, you get all the necessary items from tools to a GUI. FreeBSD is a complete operating system, meaning that it it uh, checks all of the boxes ready to go, and you can immediately benefit from the work of the FreeBSD community rather than going into the smaller factions of it: Ubuntu versus Debian versus Red Hat versus others. Right? BSD licensing, great for platform building. Uh, we mentioned this a couple times here on the show. Just in brief, licensing is often brought up, but for regular users, it often won't matter that much. If you're running a fleet of servers or maybe you're running or deploying an OS for all the laptops in an infrastructure, you're likely to care little, very little about whether the system is GPL or BSD. However, if you plan on building a new router or any sort of appliance and need an OS to get started, then it starts to make a big difference. Often when you build an appliance, you need to alter the code in ways that work for your new platform and being bound to release that code into the wild and complications regarding it. Later, monetizing that platform makes GPL licensing hmm, specific to Linux distros especially unattractive. Then there's a section on uh, community and user base, question of philosophy. So that is when choosing an operating system for your server environment, the first question might not necessarily be if commercial support is available, but how easy it is to find resources, how friendly the community is, and what the learning curve is like. Linux benefits for a large historical presence, which over time created numerous experienced submits both in large enterprises and smaller businesses. Meaning that at times, the temptation might be to go for Linux as the easier to hire for operating system. But then again, there's the community. The BSD project stayed true to its origin, and to this day, it's being led by a set of people rather than concentrating most, if not all, the power with one person. Decisions about the FreeBSD kernel and development direction are being made by the FreeBSD project as a group democratically elected technology leaders. Another section is the cost efficiency on FreeBSD versus Linux. Establishing cost efficiency between the two operating system types depends on a lot of the wants and needs of the customer and project. We've uh, mentioned before the challenge of platform bring up on Linux systems. Uh, FreeBSD is more flexible and with a community that is supportive of new projects whereas Linux has more stringent requirements. FreeBSD as a server OS only makes sense when the team is ready to take on the OS itself that has the expertise or can leverage outside help with ease. And they list a couple of FreeBSD versus Linux uh, resources uh, that uh, they have on Clara's website, so check those out and definitely uh, make your own choice. Right? Nah, nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> <laughs> you settled?
1: <laughs> I I don't know how people pick these things. I don't think, I don't think anyone that, I don't know. This might be good ammunition to help you decide if somebody's on the fence or if you're trying to like convince an organization to use FreeBSD because there yeah. are lots of balancing factors. But I think a lot of people use FreeBSD and then they see the value and they're like, then they have to advocate for it. And so,
0: yeah. Just but they be much typically better. came from Linux in the first place. It's rare that they discovered BSD first. Did you discover BSD first? Uh, No, I came from the classic Linux Debian and I ran Debian for a while and then I discovered FreeBSD and then I did a dual boot for a while and then one day I was like, hmm, I never haven't booted in Debian for a while, into Debian, so I might as well do the jump completely, erase that partition and never look back. Of course, I also (laughs) use uh, Linux at work, uh, namely Ubuntu, when there's no, uh, let's say, good alternative or... The resistance is too big but well knowing both is probably better than just knowing one and being oh i only know this one system i need to apply it everywhere like the hammer to the nails right there's a lot of value
1: in being exposed to mobile operating systems so you can see different ways to sure. do different things
0: like and i always tell students right if you have a problem and you only know one system then you have no choice of, of course using that but that might not be the best solution for that so yeah. having a little bit of and variety available is good for you to pick the right one for that particular problem you're facing
1: and and without using other platforms how are you meant to find the good ideas other people have like just because they're Linux developers doesn't mean their ideas are bad
0: mm. No no by all means they have some good solutions out there and uh, but is it like the solution for all the problems or should this apply like in general oh if it if we need a UNix then we take Linux. Yeah, but just because you only know this? That's my also my theory because um how people got this into their uh companies because they use it at home as at home, be it SUSE or Red Hat or whatever, they used it at home, so they got familiar with it. In their own private tinkering and then it was easier to bring it into their workplace because they had enough experience
1: so like thankfully for that sort of story there's tons written about the growth of linux and how it was a, a backroom system by sysadmins who just sneaked it in mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i think it was people using it at home okay um next up we have uh an article in quantum magazine the computer scientist who can't stop telling stories and i'm going to say this person's name wrong and I don't think you should write to us to tell me that I've done it wrong. I think you should just <laughs> accept it, because I've never known. Um, for pioneering computer scientist Donald Knuth, good coding, is synony- syn- <laughs> good coding is synonymous with beautiful expression. Donald is a computer scientist who came of age uh, with his field. During the nascent years of computer programming in the middle of the last century, a candy company ran a contest that summoned his talents as a 13-year-old. The contest asked kids to determine how many words could be made from the letters of the candy's name, Ziegler's Giant Bar. It was a well-defined problem with distinct pieces, just the kind he loved. I had an obsessive, compulsive streak that drew me to digital, discrete problems, and I loved poring over large collections of information. Knuth methodically leased through his family's 2,000-page funk and wagnalls unabridged dictionary in the basement. He even convinced his parents he was sick, winning himself two weeks away from school to work on the problem. Wild. After labelling index cards with headings such as A-A, A-B, B-A, based on the beginning of possible words using letters from the candy's name, he went down the dictionary's columns, noting words that qualify. He found that he could skip entire sections of the dictionary, such as pages for words starting with the letter C, or section uh, sections of the B words, whose second letter was U. The contest officials had identified approximately 2,000 words they could expect, but Knuth found more than 4,700. He was rewarded with a spot on television, chocolate for his entire class. He would go on to win many more accolades, apparently with chocolate's the most important part, Mm. uh, including the first ACM uh, Grace Murray Hopper Award, the National Medal of Science, and the A.M. Turing Award. Knuth eventually merged his dual loves of discrete digital problems and large collections of information in his magnum opus, The Art of Computer Programming a book series which he began as a graduate student in 1962 and has yet to complete. He published volume 1 in 1968, and the current version is in its 42nd printing. Volume 2 followed in 69, and volume 3 in 73. But then he was a computer science professor at Stanford, but he worried that his work would prevent him from completing his books. (laughs) So he took a leave of absence in 1990 and then retired in 93 to spend the rest of his life completing the seven-volume set. Now 82, he's hard at work on Part B of Volume 4, and he anticipates that the book will have at least Parts A through F. The Art of Computer Programming is more than a how-to manual, just as Isaac, Avimov, Isaac Asimov and Eric Temple Bell wrote both narratives and characters into their science and math stories, Knuth delights in telling stories of computer science. The best way to communicate from one human being to another is through story, he said. This passion for communication helped him play another starring role in the story of computer science beyond his magnum opus. When his publisher sent him gallery proofs for the second edition of Volume 2 in the 70s, Knuth was disturbed by the arrangement and appearance of the numbers, symbols, and words on the pages. He flew to LA to see the machine that printed glossy magazines digitally, hoping it could provide aesthetic relief, but it was too expensive. Nonetheless, on that trip, he began developing a computer language that would allow him to typeset digitally. Back at Stanford, Knuth put aside the art of computer programming for nearly a decade to develop tech. A sophisticated, game-changing program that put digital typography on a desktop computer. He made it open source, much to the benefit of professional mathematicians, computer scientists, economists, engineers, linguists, statisticians, and anyone else who lack the technical symbols on their keyboard, but understood the placement of complicated formulas better than their publishers. In a world of often ephemeral computer programs, tech has endured as a gold standard for making scientific papers more beautiful and easier for experts to read and understand. His interest in storytelling also led him to develop a philosophy of literate programming, a method for writing computer programs is literary, literary essays. A literary program intersperses source code with elegant prose in a familiar language, such as English. The source code delivers functionality and efficiency, while the composition addresses a human reader rather than the computer's compiler. Anyone who updates or debugs a literate program will understand the offer time-consuming and costly problems of trying to understand the original program's, programmer's algorithms, design decisions, and implementation strategies. Knuth is a computer scientist who understands that words matter. And so Quantum Magazine spoke with Knuth in February uh, 2020 at his home on the Stanford campus. Have you always been interested in writing, they asked. Early on, I was advised that the real world would be too hard for me. I didn't expect to discover anything new, but I loved conveying my enjoyment of ideas and writing. In the sixth grade, a couple of friends and I started a two-page paper on a ditto machine. We had jokes. In high school, every Monday night as newspaper editor, I did an all-nighter to get the paper out. I saw my first line of type in college as, a, as the student paper copy editor in my junior and senior years, the engineering and science review. For example, I wrote the, the chemical paper. Um, every word is a, as a chemical formula. You have to go and look at the article to see it. Mm. The art of computer programming is a manifesto. It describes the way I do math and the way I wish I had been taught. Beginning on page one, I tell the story of algorithms. Most textbooks at the time didn't explore the human side of discoveries. They just said, this is how chemistry works, or this is how physics works. I also tell a technical story. I say, here's something that doesn't work, and here's a way to solve that problem. Instead of presenting only facts, I did drama. Science is much easier to learn if you know the sequence of discoveries. Also, I'm unable to resist a good story. I feed myself as a pioneer, but not as a pioneer, but as a journalist. Beyond the story, what is the art of computer programming about? After two years of writing my book, I realized its novelty was quantitatively determining how good a program is. I didn't just want to say one program was better than another, I wanted to say one is 13.8% better than another and explain how to compare them. Author A would talk about algorithm A and author B would talk about his competing algorithm B. And author A never wrote about algorithm B and author B never wrote about algorithm A. Also authors A and B use different computers. As a neutral journalist, I explained both from one point of view asking, How good is an algorithm really is a fun problem, that's the analysis of algorithms. I was at the Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics conference in 1967 when someone asked what I did. In those days computer science was partitioned into numerical analysis, artificial intelligence, and programming languages. That was it. I realized I needed a name for what I do. My book's novelty was its rigorous studies of how good the algorithms were. I decided the next time I was asked the question I would say analysis of algorithms. My definition was, if I'm interested in it, it's the analysis of algorithms. It was not a very good definition. Later, I decided to justify it. I decided it was the quantitative study of how good an algorithm is, which I divided into two parts. One part considering all possible algorithms for a certain problem. The other part considered one particular algorithm for a certain problem. Analysis of algorithms was going to be my life's work. I told my publisher to change the title of my book to the analysis of algorithms. My publisher said, that will never sell. They made the right decision. Still, I was happy when four years later, five or six books came out with the title Analysis of Algorithms. <laughs> and the interview continues, but I will let you look this up in our show notes and read it yourself.
0: So, what I also heard about Knuth is that he doesn't do email. He just doesn't. That's probably why yeah, he has time to write. He has a secretary. Yeah, I well, want that too. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it would make your life, a lo- it makes everyone's life easier if they have someone to deal with the world for them.
0: Yeah. just... The drop off the boring stuff, the unimportant things. Um. I mean,
1: maybe the the uh, <laughs> driving engine behind our next story could help deal with the world, but I, I'm oh, not to yeah. play with it.
0: Certainly, yeah. So uh, our uh, grumpy BSD guy, namely Peter Henstein, has asked ChatGPT to write a PF conf to spec. Because why not? So P, uh, PF, Peter Hensley knows a thing or two about uh, OpenBSD's uh, PF firewall because he's written books about it. And uh, he basically prompted the following to the chat GPT, which is all the rage. You probably used it yourself. Don't lie. Uh, based on the information in uh, the OpenBSD FAQ, uh, so he provides the URL there and links therein as well as a man at openbsd.org slash pf.conf and uh, the spamd d write an pfconf that blocks by default, allows traffic from the local host, allows name resolution network time and SSH out from the DMZ, lets HTTP and HTTPS through to the web server and allows SMTP that has been whitelisted by spam d to pass to the mail server and here goes the AI uh, sure, blah, blah. Here's an example of an OBSDPF. Uh, I'm not reading the whole config, uh, but uh, Peter is analyzing that whole thing. Um Yeah, um, so the AI also said that you should uh, replace interface names to the ones that you have on your system. Additionally, adjust the names of the web server and mail server as needed. Ah, they invented some mail server names. Okay. Um, uh, Remember to save the pf.conf file in the correct location, edcpf.conf by default in OpenBSD. Yeah, that's kind of good to know. And reload the firewall rules using the pfctl command for the changes to take effect. That is certainly reasonable and makes sense to have. So, the yeah, AI is not wrong on that part. Uh, the configuration assumes that you have already set up SpamD and whitelisted desired SMTP traffic. I always get this from when I do the prompt sign of like, yeah, I assume too much. And then it, the AI tells me, yeah, I should have put more into the prompt to make it more specific. But going back to the article, um, Peter writes, I will leave it as an exercise to the reader to point out why this would earn an F. Right, and so this is not a uh, passing grade, uh, or you can take in things like our network management with the OpenBSD packet filter toolset, uh, the tutorial that he did uh, in the past and still does, or just get yourself a copy of the book of PF, nice self advertisement here, uh, as an option after looking up the PF user guide. So, uh, there's also an update here point it at specific. Sources. See, so yeah, that was new that he provided the URLs for me. I have never done this in a chat GBT prompt, but I know that it can now follow uh, URLs, which is even more horrifying. But uh, going back, after posting the original result, I got a few responses with lots of smileys and other emojis. Then a colleague advised that I pointed out the systems as specific sources, such as the man pages, would likely produce better results. So here's the second exchange. So that's the one I just uh, um, read out. And the response there is... um, So they added a couple tables there, it seems like, which populated the A to C spam the whitelist file. So Peter writes about this. It did pick up a few clues from the man page I fed it, but it still has fairly obvious flaws that would stem from it not being able to take in the actual interdependencies of even a very cleverly worded, if slightly complex document like manpf.conf. Okay. Um... So Peter tries, uh, or on his own. Or why is he? Ah, uh, the f- third try response was certainly there's an updated version. Ah, okay, so he provides a bit more information. So he's kind of uh, teaching the AI to be a bit better. Um, in this version, the rules have been updated to align with the OpenBSD PF FAQ and provide a more comprehensive configuration. Make sure to save the PF conf blah blah and the usual uh, stuff we already saw. And Peter writes about that: it is fairly obvious that this would not pa- have passed the PFCTL parser, and that feeding it the relevant man pages as well as the PF user guide did not make the system more capable of understanding how rule evaluation actually works. In fact, all three tries would be functionally equivalent to the Radators block right just block nothing else but arriving at that conclusion would require the reader to actually understand the content fed to it so his favorite take on this so far came via a mastodon from mark shane hayden in this toot which reads it full <clears throat> i suppose we can take solace in that if skynet ever came into existence for real, it would be unreachable <laughs> excellent so yeah don't <laughs> do all the things in the ai or don't create firewall rules in AI, it will probably leave more holes open than you want to have.
1: I, I think um, Frank Herbert covered this best. Um, Thou shall not make a machine in the likeness of a human mind. Ah, yeah, oh, that too, yeah. Okay, next so. up we have the <laughs> news roundup. And first in the news roundup, we have GhostBSD230601 which I imagine is the 1st of June uh, this year. Hmm. Um, this comes from Eric BSD. That's, uh, you know, nominative determinism there. Um, this has been a long time since I have officially released an ISO. With all the difficulties and issues I encounter with the new XORG version and old NVIDIA drivers, this ISO was is overdue. 230601 contains many bug fixes, security fixes, and feature improvements. For details, see the changelog below. And there's a nice screenshot of uh, some coast. That looks nice. Um... And then there's a big change log. Um, as a highlight, this release contains a new tool called Backup Station to manage ZFS boot environment. Now the default time is set to local instead of UTC, which fixes an issue with light DM time. Software Station got search got improved to be less laggy. And see below for a complete list of fixes. And there's a ton of fixes. Um, if you want to find the fixes, go read the release notes from our show notes. Um, all images and checksums can be grabbed from slash download, and then they follow with examples of um, how to create a, an ISO or a USB stick. And they list the minimum, minimum system requirements of 64 bit processor, 4 gigabytes of RAM, and 15 gigabytes of free hardware space, uh, free disk space, and a network card. I've never seen a network card just a system requirement before. But yeah, you need a network mm. card for a computer to be of any use.
0: Yeah especially these cloudy things nowadays. But, yeah, what do I know? Uh, <laughs> there is also another release that we have in the news roundup. Uh, OpenSense got 23.1.9 released, and that reads, uh, hey, a small update to improve stability with multiple delegated prefixes from DHCPv v6 connectivity as well as a proper no-binding handling in the DHCP v6 client itself. Internally, the... Back end service has been refactored to allow for future additions, but no visible functionality changes have been made. Uh, still pretty happy with the IPSec connections, MVC uh, pages introducing in 23.1. So we would like to apply the same approach to OpenVPN for 23.7, and it's going to land in the next development version, most likely for a sneak preview. Uh, they provide a couple patch notes, uh, mostly uh, system firewall, the DHCP one I just read. About the interfaces, some backend stuff, and ports updates. So check out the full details if you are on OpenSense, and definitely heed the closing. They say stay safe, uh, both virtual and in the real world. Your OpenSense team. Is it is it someone's motto? Stay safe, stay open source. Um, that that seems familiar, but still. Uh-huh, I can't recall. If, if,
1: if, if you as a listener recognize this motto or think I've invented something, please write <laughs> in. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> next Cheers. in the news roundup, we have running VS Code in Chromium on OpenBSD, and this is by um, I can't tell. Uh, VS Code and its many variations are not available on OpenBSD. This doesn't cause issue with many OpenBSD users, but it makes the jump from Linux. It, but those making the jump from Linux might miss access to such a popular editor. Luckily for us, there's a hacky workaround to solve this problem. VS Code in the browser. I tried my best to build something like Code Server locally and run that directly in my browser, but I failed miserably. Instead, I fell back on vscode.dev, which is essentially a remote version of Code Server. Getting things to work seamlessly proved a little more challenging. I found the best performance was running everything through Chromium with special parameters enabled on launch. The following assumes you've already installed Chromium. First, we need to disable unveil for Chromium. This will allow us to access uh, our system files through vscode.dev using the open folder and open file commands without issue. Everything should work pretty solid right out of the box, except it doesn't. Syntax highlighting does not work without uh, enabling WASM WebAssembly. Your experience might be different, but I had to include the following launching Chrome from the terminal, Uh, enable WASM. Success! We can avoid typing out these complex commands every time we want by setting an alias in our zshrc. And that's it. You can just pop open VS Code on OpenBSD, simply running VS Code in my terminal. Hopefully this can help others slowly transition over to OpenBSD, which you should do because it's amazing,
0: better than Linux. Good. So check that out. And I guess it's also working on other BSDs. Are there other BSDs? uh yeah, yeah there are, no idea yeah. Yeah. several
1: <laughs> turns I, out i don't know maybe maybe it will just work i mean i know as a community they do it we do a ton of work to make sure that chrome will run on BSDs. Uh, i use firefox so I don't Say, know. same here
0: yeah <laughs> but yeah and it's also about vs code with the students it's fairly popular um i can see the some of the benefits. I just wonder if they don't have that for some reason and they just have a terminal. How can they code themselves be- out be- of Bennett, misery? If you, if you
1: tell your students they should be running Vim you, <laughs> instead of VS Code, you are literally the old man shouting at Cloud.
0: Uh, yeah, I get older every year, so and students stay the same age. How unfair. So I'm fairly uh, yeah, getting into this territory of being the old grumpy guy. Um, Speaking of old and grumpy, uh, we have some news from the T-U-H-S, which is your favorite uh, Unix. It's from Cough, though. It's from oh, that the, too, yeah. But um, in here, we have the link. I don't know what Cough stands for. I can't even guess. They, they, they missed the two E's at the end. Files? From Cough.
1: No one tell us what Cough stands for. I'm having a lot more fun trying to guess.
0: Mm, maybe it's part of the uh, riddle. No, they say here that Bellups versus East Coast management style of AT&T, and that is Posted or uh, prompted by a question, uh, <laughs> the person here says, I was wondering if anyone close to early Unix and Bell Labs would offer some comments on the evolution of Unix and the quality of decisions made by at and senior managers. Uh, so Tom Wolfe did an interesting piece on Fairchild slash Silicon Valley where he highlights the differences between uh, Silicon Valley's management style and the East Coast management style. Around 2000, Silicon Valley changed from being chips and hardware to software and systems. With chip making, every new generation technology step resets competition. Monopolies can't be maintained. Microsoft showed that software is the opposite. Vendor lock-in and monopolies are common, even easy for aggressive players. Uh, noise & More ran Fairchild Semiconductor, but Fairchild Camera and Instrument was East Coast, or old-school, extracting maximum profit. It seems to me an outsider that AT&T management saw how successful Unix was and decided they could appear or apply their size, marketing know-how, and client list to becoming a big player in software and hardware. This appears to be the reason for the 1984 divestiture. In another decade, they gave up and got out of Unix. Another decade on, AT&T had one of the best be- Baby bells, SBC, buy it. Okay. <laughs> SBC had understood the future growth markets for telephone was mobile, and instead of traditional telco pricing, what the market will bear plus uh, requiring gross margins over 90%, SBC adopted more of a Silicon Valley pricing approach, modest gross margins and high pass-through rates, handing most and all cost reductions onto customers. Um... If you're in a commodity market, passing on cost savings to customers is profit-maximizing. It isn't because commodity markets are highly competitive, but volumes drive profit, and lower prices stimulate demand and volumes. Okay. Kenneth Flam has written a lot on pass-through and silicon chip manufacture. Just to close the loop, Bell Labs around 1966 hired Fred Terman, ex-dean of Stanford, to write a proposal for Silicon Valley East. &T management were fully aware of California and perhaps it was a long-term threat. How could they replicate in New Jersey? No wait. how could they replicate in New Jersey, the powerhouse of innovation that was happening in California? There's a couple more historical facts and timelines and I guess the thread is interesting enough to read in full. so check out the whole thread replies. And uh relive that historical bit if you've been there.
1: Yeah, and if you wanna read no if you wanna know more about what happened through um Fairchild and then into Intel with Noyce and more, you could read the book The Intel Trinity, um, which is a quite in-depth history, uh, business history of what happened in a lot of the relationships. And a, a lot of the issues with Fairchild were just turned management. And yeah, it's it's interesting to see how that can go. I love love the phrase, AT&T was aware of California. Uh, Like we know of something sneaking up on them. California's (laughs) coming to get you.
0: There's something on the other side of the coast, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, and history is uh, written right there, and we are where we are because of that. More solid decision there. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated, so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Um, The next decision we're going to do is feedback and questions, more specifically which ones to pick. Definitely send us feedback and questions to feedback at bstnow.tv. We usually try to fill up episodes as we have enough material for this section. Um, And this one is the first from Matt about WireGuard. Hopefully we can uh, give you a correct answer here. Uh, Matt writes, I have a question. I'm listening to episode 500 at the moment. Okay. Uh, I just listened to the segment about WireGuard with Adblock. How easily can configurations be changed on the server from a device that is being served? In any given case, there may be content which is blocked that a user may wish to unblock. This is why I'm asking. Thanks so much. I I, I wasn't on this show, Benedict. I don't, I don't know what this question is you, about. Yeah, you have time out. Um, I, mean, I, I can
1: answer. <laughs> will the answer be helpful?
0: Sure. Good try. <laughs> Do you know Benedict? So um, I'm tr- currently dabbling a little bit with AdGuard because I saw that Bastille BSD has a ready-made template for that to deploy this. Uh, so I want this is basically a DNS uh, sinkhole as far as I understood.
1: Ah, okay. I mean I I think if if Adblock has a web management interface, you could just expose it to WireGuard and then it should be fine. Um you might have to have the interface listen on an address which is on the WireGuard tunnel, but I think it should be okay. I don't see why not. Uh this is me guessing. I don't know what any of this is about. I don't know what WireGuard is. WireGuard's Yeah. This. <laughs>
0: As long as you don't block yourself from the device that is um, managing. But it's
1: just DNS, right? Like it's not.
0: Yeah. It doesn't block block everything. Yeah. For example, some YouTube ads or some.
1: And and who hasn't locked themselves out with a firewall rule change?
0: Yeah, of course.
1: I guess you could could break DNS, but I don't think you would. Um, But yeah, if there's a web Mm -hmm. interface, then you could be able to manage it. If not, you can always SSH from anything. Mm Yeah. So yeah, the user could manage it. It's like, how friendly is, is it to manage?
0: Yeah, it, it should be able to, for non-computer people to have a way to control that or how far, uh, what should be blocked and what not.
1: Okay, next up, we have some feedback from Oscar. Oscar writes, hi, just heard the latest episode in which you mentioned ISC DHCPD being depreciated and replaced by ISC Kia. Kia is pretty nice and runs fine on FreeBSD, and probably the others as well just tried it on FreeBSD. It's configured in JSON, which is what it is, but it has an API, can run yeah mode, be backed by okay. databases, can run IHO mode. Can I run H-A-Mode? Yeah, the capitalization is confusing. Huh. It can. Anyway, uh, be backed by databases or just plain text file, rich documentation, and a bunch of premium extensions aimed for large enterprises. These paid extensions seem to be a way to guarantee some basic income for the project, and I think that's okay. I wrote an Ansible rule to manage Kia so I can write YAML instead of JSON. Oh, I nice. described the precursor precursor for this rule at my blog, and they give a link, and it will be in the show notes. Thanks for a great show. Cheers from the Subarctics, Oscar. Ooh, yes. wow. And so at the start of the show, when, when we were talking about um, Jason's... Um, camera and microphone not being under his control i was imagining kia's <laughs> stealing stuff um i couldn't remember what kia's were called i could just remember the postcard i had with a kia from new zealand i'm aware that jason's not from new zealand he's australian right mm-hmm. and so yeah but still kia's because we're allowed to confuse stuff <laughs> uh, kia's steal windscreen wipers they're, they're troublesome in what way they're cool birds well uh, they like steal stuff they, they're famous for stealing hikers lunches Um oh okay yeah People will come back from walking up hills, and the Kias will have taken their like windscreen wipers apart, and the wind mirrors <laughs> off, and license plates. It just takes them
0: They're very inquisitive. Excellent. Okay, so guard your car, and I saw belongings.
1: one at uh, Auckland Zoo, or two, two at Auckland Zoo. Haven't been to that part of the world, so great birds. I'd love <laughs> to see one in the wild. That that won't happen.
0: <laughs> we'll see. Okay, so Kias are the um, <laughs> the, the the new thing. In DHCP land, at least, and or from ISC, the, their choice. And I look at the role and check out the playbook. I certainly will dive into it because I look at other people's playbooks in more like, hmm, it's interesting how how they write their code or how they write their instructions. Because I pretty much slam everything as a variable, and people have a lot of different styles of. Hey, I just just give commands and do them, and it's fine. So it's kind of interesting to see other playbooks or roles. But uh, so thanks for this kind of um, addition to the show and we get a couple more uh, people into this space and join to your blog. So don't hesitate. If you have interesting other posts like this, let us know. We'll be happy to cover it here. And I think that's it for the show, right? Nothing more? that's all we got uh, unless we talk a little bit among ourselves well you do that anytime <laughs> uh, no no that's the whole episode a bit shorter this time but definitely check out the whole uh details and all the articles especially donald knuth one which is a bit longer and yeah let us know how you like this